0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Foom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, tech executives were back on Capitol Hill. Representatives from Google, Facebook, Apple and Amazon faced antitrust questions from House lawmakers. While David Marcus, the Facebook executive responsible for its proposed digital coin Libra, testified for two days before an audience of skeptical House and Senate committees. Marcus tried to reassure lawmakers that Facebook can be trusted with its users' money.
2: Trust is primordial and we've made mistakes in the past and we have been working and are continuing to work really hard uh, to get better. And uh, we've invested in a number of programs, notably on privacy, election integrity and a number of other issues.
1: And he pushed back on criticism of choosing Switzerland as the location for Calibra's headquarters.
2: The choice of switzerland again is not to evade any responsibility or regulatory oversight it was really because we believe that uh, a global digitally native currency uh, that uh, will be used by people all around the world uh, would benefit from being headquartered in an international place uh, that is also the home of many respected international organizations
1: we discussed all of this with michael sonnenschein managing director at grayscale investments which is the world's largest digital currency asset manager and has more than $2.7 billion in assets under management. We started by talking about the flows and interest in the space that he's seen recently and asked him if Libra has helped fuel more attention on crypto.
3: This is an important moment for the digital currency ecosystem. When you see companies like Facebook and PayPal and Square really starting to devote their energies towards digital currency endeavors, it's causing everyone from policymakers to regulators to the investment community to really focus in on digital asset efforts.
4: Do you, do you welcome this sort of attention? I mean, uh, you know, I felt like a year ago, crypto was kind of in its own little world. It had a lot of supporters, a lot of cheerleaders. Now you have the president, one of the most powerful people in the world talking about it, which I'm not sure is a good thing. You have Congress, debate. Baiting it. Do you sort of welcome this attention? Do you think it's going to sort of lead to something positive?
3: I think what's important to remember is that it's early in the life cycle of this asset class. And so, what we're really starting to see is the development of the infrastructure. So, if you look at yesterday, Secretary Mnuchin's commentary, for example, looking at digital assets and wanting to see there be anti money laundering issues in place, KYC, money service business practices, you know, that's the kind of stuff that the on ramps and the off ramps and all the infrastructure around crypto assets can really stand to benefit from.
5: I wonder how much of the problems that we're seeing right now have solely to do with the fact that Facebook's in its name. I mean, if Libra were coming from someone else besides Facebook, would it be getting this much scrutiny? Does that hurt or help?
3: You know, I'm not even sure that I'm the best person to comment on it, but I do think that Facebook's approach of working very closely with regulators is, you know, an approach quite frankly that our business at grayscale, we've been doing this for almost six years and you know, being the world's largest asset manager, we have to constantly be engaging with policymakers, regulators, ensuring we have the right level of disclosure, et cetera. And that's really what's attracting investors to us.
5: Talking about attraction of investors, you've seen a near tripling in your assets under management in the last quarter I mean that's quite phenomenal up to 2.7 billion from 926 million where is the money coming from
3: so A lot of folks, particularly folks in your seats, often ask, where are the institutions when it comes to digital currency? And at Grayscale, they've been coming to us for quite some time. Um, This past quarter, about 84% of our inflows were from institutions. So that's hedge funds, it's pensions, endowments, it's investors that are looking for digital asset exposure through a trusted counterparty and through a framework that, you know, works for them legally and operationally.
4: With those institutions, though, I mean, you're also talking about institutions that like a little bit more stability. And we've seen a lot of volatility in the, in the cryptos. If you just take Bitcoin, for example, just over the past couple of months, uh, how do you manage that volatility and sort of reassure uh, your clients that, you know their investments are at least somewhat safe.
3: Well, over 2018, we actually had the strongest asset raising stretch we've ever had, almost 360 million dollars amongst a market that did nothing but decline. And so, when you see pullbacks in prices like that, or even recently seeing more volatility in the market, our investors are viewing that as an opportunity to get more exposure at more attractive levels. And so, we're actually seeing investors not just invest in Bitcoin, but actually moving across all ten products that we offer at Grayscale.
5: So, talk to me. About- Because we sit here on the program, we try to differentiate between blockchain technology and Bitcoin. From the flows that you're seeing and the interest from some of the institutional investors that you're talking about, has there been an interest beyond Bitcoin into Ethereum, Ripple, some of the other broader currencies that are maybe less popular?
3: So in the past quarter, we actually saw a lot more inflows into our non-Bitcoin products. Mm -hmm. So about a quarter of our inflows were actually into our Ethereum and Ethereum Classic products. Now one of the big catalysts for that was throughout uh, Q2 of this year, we actually secured a public quotation for our Ethereum products. We have three publicly quoted securities that give investors digital asset exposure.
5: Is this still purely speculative though in terms of the money coming in, they're seeing them as a chance to trade, a chance to make money. When will we start to see the killer apps being formed, the uses of Ethereum in particular with its smart contract actually coming into play and getting people's attention?
3: Well, our parent company, Digital Currency Group, has now invested in over 140 uh, digital currency-related businesses in over 30 countries around the world. And so these are companies that are working on identity management solutions, um, you know, working on different ways to implement things like smart contracts, etc. So it's very early days, and we'll eventually find some of those killer apps. But in the meantime, the investment community, um, if you had one takeaway, it's really looking at assets like Bitcoin as a digital store of value or almost as a digital gold. And so we've definitely seen that, you know, resonating with our investor base.
1: Then we took a different look at the trade war. We're seeing how tariffs are slowing economic growth in China and possibly elsewhere. But when you look into who feels the pain, no matter the country, it turns out to be women. And that's because of higher prices on things like apparel, groceries, and household appliances. So I sat down with Katika Roy, founder and CEO of Pipeline Equity, to talk about just how women are bearing the bigger brunt of trade wars.
6: The gender tariffs actually are part of the pink tax, that is how much money is coming out of women's pockets. Wait, let's back up a little bit. Yeah. What's a pink tax? A pink tax is uh, essentially the same item and women pay more for it. So often it's referred to in terms of deodorant or shaving cream or razors, anything that is essentially gendered. So uh, we actually pay more. On average average we pay uh, about 7% more. So as a result
1: of this pink tax, which many people are not aware of, but now that you say it, it seems to make sense, mm-hmm. uh, women are more affected by yes. import taxes than men are.
6: Yes. So not only do we have less money coming into our wallets, we have more money coming out of our wallets. And that's where the tariffs actually come in. So. Um, So 75% of uh, tariffs that US households pay for actually are on apparel. And women actually bear 65% of those tariffs.
1: So, the tariffs themselves don't have any kind of gender bias.
6: This was not necessarily by design, it was not intentional, No. it just kind of works out that way. It does. So, for every item, uh, so typically footwear and apparel, but also household appliances like vacuum cleaners and washing machines, Mm -hmm. Um, but for footwear and apparel, they are sorted into statistical categories, and those statistical categories have gender attached. So you could have virtually the same hiking boot or, um, or the, you know, the same um, shirt, essentially. And women are paying, on average, more than men are paying.
1: And if we dig into the reasons why, is
6: there an explanation for this no. beyond the fact that it's whatever the market will bear? Um, no, there's not There's not a real logical reason for that. What other sectors
1: are, that are subject to import tariffs have a discriminatory impact? Not by design, but just mm-hmm. that's how it works out.
6: So the, the three places that it, the, in tariffs that actually impact it from a gender perspective are, uh, are apparel, mm-hmm. footwear, and then home items. And you are talking about washing machines. Yeah, and why that matters is actually unpaid labor. So we know, for instance, that women do, on average, four hours more per week of unpaid labor to men. So if you are, last year, the, the tariff on washing machines went up 12%. So if you can afford to buy a more efficient washing machine where you can do fewer loads of laundry or a robotic vacuum cleaner, then you can save time and actually focus more on other things, such as your work. So this disproportionately affects lower-income
1: women yes. as well more, and, and not just men versus women. Correct, that's So
6: right. we have this disparity. Is yeah. this recognized in any official capacity? Are people aware of this? Some are aware of it. Certainly the footwear and apparel industry is aware of it because that is typically passed through to the consumer um, but, but besides that it's not commonly wa- known. Are policymakers aware of it? It hasn't been talked about. But certainly, Congress could do something about it, right? They could either choose the less, the lower tax rate, or they could remove gender from the classification. How would they go about that? Walk us through what that would mean. So, uh, so when we import goods, so we import T-shirts or clothes, dresses, shoes, we, we apply tariffs uh, to those items. What Congress has control over is what those tariffs actually are. So the two ways um, that, that uh, or excuse me, how those tariffs are actually applied. So the two ways that Congress could actually impact it would either be to just choose whatever the lower percentage is. So for instance, on average, women pay a 15.1% tariff on their items, versus men pay 11.9%. So you could choose the lower uh, tariff rate or you could remove gender from the st- statistical categories altogether. Mm. And has anyone made this suggestion to Congress? Have you, for instance, put this forth? I haven't put it forth, no. Uh, they, they, um, there have been some court cases, uh, but not, not, nothing that has actually solidified and uh, changed the policy.
1: So how do we move forward from here? I mean, we know this information. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. What do you do with it? I mean, we can say that someone should bring this up to policymakers, but they have mm-hmm. bigger fires to fight at the moment as well.
6: Maybe. I, you know, the majority of, uh, of, uh, um, of apparel and footwear are actually imported. That mm-hmm. We don't manufacture them here in the United States. And if you want to actually talk about closing the gender pay gap, this is a very important part of that with the money that's actually coming out of women's pockets and so it needs to be part of a a full, well-thought-out solution to actually closing the gender pay gap. We often talk about the money coming into women's uh, women's pockets, so the 80, per, 80 cents on the dollar. For working moms, it's actually 69 cents on the dollar. It's lower than women on average. And, it, it, and 71% of working families actually rely on moms' earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we want to talk about closing the gender pay gap, it's not only the amount of money that's coming in to women's, uh, pocketbook it's actually the money going out. I wonder how many
1: people will buy this argument given that the White House is so insistent that China pays the tariffs mm-hmm. and American consumers but they don't, don't pay it at all. But they that's not true. But people are convinced of that argument because that argument's been put out there. Yeah it's been officially it, that's a false
6: argument. <laughs> is that, I mean it is that money uh, goes to the US government but it, it we are the ones who actually pay those tariffs. Right. In 2018, as I mentioned, tw- washing machines, the tariff on washing machines went up 12%. That didn't go into my pocket. That went, if I bought a washing machine last year, that went into the U.S. government's pocket.
1: You paid it out, and as a woman who ends up doing more laundry than a man, that's yeah. the cost of that's your right. free labor.
6: Right, and if I can buy a bigger washing machine, I have to do fewer loads of laundry, which means I can use my time for something more productive. Maybe he's founding a startup, for instance. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Or contributing to the economy, which ultimately it contributes to our GDP, which is good for everybody.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more.
1: Another casualty of the trade war between the U.S. and China has been science. As Beijing and Washington feud over tariffs and technology protection, one demographic has been caught in the middle — ethnic Chinese researchers and scientists who work in the U.S. Professor Xiao Shi was one such target. He once headed up the Temple University physics department. He was arrested four years ago for allegedly spying and stealing breakthrough technology for China. The charges were dropped four months later, but it's left a stain on Xi's career and how the scientific community conducts research. Professor Xi is still employed at Temple, but in a different role. He sat down with us to talk about the impact, and we began by asking Professor Xi if he's still pursuing the same research as before his arrest.
7: Well, I'm still doing my research, but uh, this experience has dramatically impacted my research. So my research program is not uh, as large as it used to be. At the time of my arrest, I have uh, nine federal grants and uh, and the contract, and now I have two. And there were 15 students postdocs and uh, senior personnel uh, at that
4: time, and now I have three. When you're uh, sort of doing your research, and obviously there's sort of the collaborative process that Mm -hmm. we see amongst a lot of sciences, Mm -hmm. Uh, is that process, uh, do you find it harder now? Are there people who maybe don't want to work with you? Are you finding impediments to sort of, you know, just conducting your, your science? Um, that uh, situation has not
7: arisen because, uh, you know, as I said, my research program is much smaller than mm-hmm. it used to be. Uh, but I do know Chinese scientists who are scared and uh, terrified, and they, they stop collaborating with uh, Chinese colleagues.
1: Talk a little bit about the government funding, because that's a big part of what you do. You do rely on it. Um, are you applying for it the same way that you did before, and you're just not getting the amount of money that you were before? How has the process changed uh, in obvious ways and perhaps more subtle ways?
7: Mm. Um, yeah, I am still applying for funding, uh, but the, uh, I'm trying to push for joint project that I will not be the sole PI. And uh, the reason for doing that is uh, after my experience, I, uh, I realized what uh, the government can twist uh, to charge me. So, uh, to apply for funding or, or manage funding, you have to sign a lot of forms and check a lot of boxes. And I understand that anything that I do which is not exactly accurate could be the reason for them to charge me.
4: So, it, I mean, given the position that you're in, I mean, the stature that you have, mm-hmm. and you're saying that you're not willing to sort of, or you don't really want to put yourself out there as the number one, you would rather sort of link yourself up with a non Uh, someone who's not of Chinese heritage, I guess, to sort of avoid the type of scrutiny that you faced before. What does that mean, though, for people uh, underneath you or people who haven't achieved what you have achieved, who are trying to work their way up? Does that put them in a position where they either can't make a name for themselves here in the U.S., or is there still an avenue uh, for a Chinese national or a Chinese American uh, to excel in that field? You know, you're absolutely right. If you don't have funding for research, you Mm -hmm. cannot establish yourself. Uh,
7: in, in the research field. So that's definitely true. And, and the, uh, I, I see two kinds of uh, uh, reactions. One kind is, uh, is some people get uh, scared and mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are people who decide, okay, if I want to get uh, the opportunities uh, in China, they just don't get funding in this country. Or there are people who are just stop collaborating with uh, people in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are another uh, group of people who would think, uh, to, you know, they say to themselves, this is not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't break law, I follow the rules, and uh, it's not going to happen to me. But this is uh, not uh, correct because, you know, my own experience mm-hmm. uh, tells me that you don't have to do anything wrong to be charged by the uh, government uh, as a Chinese spy.
1: Yeah, it's very sobering. One thing that we've uh, also read about as well, and I think of uh, Xifeng Wu, uh, whose career was ruined because she was collaborating with scientists Mm -hmm. in China as well. This overseas collaboration that we've seen really sprout up in the scientific community, that was essential to pushing American innovation, American science research. Um, Without that, how far can U.S. scientists really pursue their research without the collaboration with their overseas
7: peers? You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the preeminence of U.S. science and technology after World War II is to large part due to its competitive ecosystem. And in that system, uh, ecosystem, there are uh, three parts, government, industry, and academia. Mm-hmm. And each part has its own functions. For academia, Its job is to train next generation scientists and uh, engineers and to conduct open research, which require free flow of information. So if you crack down. On, open, uh, on collaboration, on open research, you stifle the American uh, competitiveness and uh, you know the innovation in science and technology.
4: There are some people, though, that would argue that, as far as American competitiveness in physics, uh, in the medicines, uh, that there was a period, a stretch in the United States where it was insular, where they didn't need to go uh, outside of the borders, I guess, for help or with collaboration. That was obviously a long time ago. Do you think it's possible that any country, not just the U.S., can make make that type of landmark progress that we saw in the 50s, 60s, 70s without international collaboration?
7: I don't think it is true that there is a period that the United States do not rely on uh, exchange. Uh, to 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 get uh, uh, advances in science and technology, uh, for one, that there are a lot of scientists who are established in this country, making tra- contributions to science and technology. They are from other countries, mm-hmm. so you need talents that come from all over the world to the United States to make it, uh, you know, competitive.
1: We know that under the current environment, the U.S.-China trade war has led to a lot of uh, concerns about retaliation and racial profiling, more racial mm-hmm. profiling. But it's important to remember that your incident stems back to 2015 when the Obama administration was in charge. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it feels like this is not something limited to a Republican administration or a Democratic uh, administration. What's the likelihood that anything will change if we get a change in the presidency come 2020? What's your outlook four years out, five years out?
7: Mm-hmm. Um, you are absolutely right. This is not a partisan issue. This is the American ideal issue. And uh, so a lot of uh, what's happening mm-hmm. now all have a one similarity to my case. That is uh, the FBI got uh, access to email accounts of Chinese scientists and, and some, some, some FBI agents will read you email. And as I said, they try to pick bones out mm-hmm. of an egg.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: Um, maybe there is bone, maybe there is none. But, but singling out Chinese scientists, for, for scrutin, scrutin, uh, scrutiny, mm-hmm. uh, surveillance, and uh, uh, punishment is racial profiling. That's not right.
1: There are probably some second-generation, third-generation Chinese-Americans who think that all of this doesn't apply to them. They don't Mm -hmm. work with collaborators in China, in Mm -hmm. Taiwan. Um, What do you say to them? How how do you advise them? If if your daughter was going to go into Mm -hmm. this field, how would you advise her?
7: Well, you know, uh, to many people, it doesn't really matter if you come from mainland or Taiwan or first-generation or third-generation. You are Chinese. And this will happen to every scientist and engineer of Chinese ethnic origin. So you ask me about the outlook. I think the, uh, the only way to deal with this is for the uh, Chinese-American society, uh, community, for the scientific community to speak up for open research and uh, for, uh, against the racial profiling.
1: And the stage for the second two-night round of Democratic debates is set. But even with Congressman Eric Swalwell of California bowing out of the race, the lineup hasn't gotten any smaller. There will still be 20 Democratic White House hopefuls making their pitch to voters. With so much attention being focused on the top four or five candidates, we spoke with one of the presidential candidates still trying to break through, Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio. We began by asking the congressman about his economic message versus President Trump's.
2: A high stock market and low unemployment does not necessarily mean that the, the middle class, the working class people in the United States are doing well. I'm here to say very clearly they are not. 75% of the American people today are still living paycheck to paycheck. We have been crushed not just in the last 10 years since the uh, some subprime mortgage crisis, but going back 40 years with globalization, deindustrialization, now automation. There's been no strategy in the United States to rebuild the middle class. And I've been traveling just in the last few days, there's homeless people in Manchester, New Hampshire. There's homeless people here in uh, greenville south carolina there's tent cities in, in in los angeles the the income inequality is as high as it's been since the great depression and so we've got to, and i say this on bloomberg because i think it's important not that we, we've got to be divided about this but we have a big time problem in our country that a, a vast majority of the people Uh, at the top are not recognizing how deep this runs. And we've got to fix this middle class. We've got to get it back up and running again.
8: Well, Congressman, one way perhaps that uh, the sort of effects of deindustrialization and globalization uh, could be uh, mitigated would be a new trade relationship with China. And obviously that's something that the president believes could help address some of these issues. Were you the president right now, how would your approach to dealing with China differ from President Trump's? Well, the the tariffs that the the president
2: is putting on, and some of them I actually support, because we've had steel dumped in our country for a long time that's put steel workers out of business, hurts uh, the steel industry because they were cheating. And so we need countervailing duties and anti-dumping provisions on that steel coming in. But that's a tactical move. With China, we need a long-term strategy. Now, Secretary Mattis put a long-term military strategy together with the National Defense Strategy with China and with Russia, but we have no whole of government, no economic strategy with China. And we've got to go through competition. We've got to outcompete them. You you guys know all about the Belt Road Initiative. You know about the islands in the South China Sea. You all know about the raw material contracts in Africa and the ports in the Middle East and rail lines going all the way to Europe. You know all about that stuff. What's our strategy? They've got a 50, 100-year plan We've got a president who lives in a 24 hour news cycle. And I, when I'm president, we're going to have a long term strategy around dominating the electric vehicle market and driving. So the American worker is building electric vehicles. So the American worker is building the batteries. So the American worker is building the charging stations. Right now, China controls 40 to 50 percent of the electric vehicle market. Same thing with solar. How do we dominate and build the most solar panels in the world? Right now, China controls 60 percent of that market, AI, additive manufacturing, wind. Let's go. Come on, America. I mean, we got to do this. But when you have a president that is the distractor in chief instead of someone like I would be, which is a long term strategy, bringing in investors, bringing in labor, bringing in the government and put a whole of government approach to dominate these markets, we can do it.
5: All right. Well, you talked about the auto sector and the electric vehicle market. On paragraph three of your homepage, Congressman, you talk about a closing of a local GM plan and your daughter's friend whose father lost her job. What's your plan for bringing back these GM plants to your local town?
2: Well, hopefully work with GM to move into the electric vehicle market. I mean, that's a prime example of there's gonna be 30 million electric vehicles made in the next 10 years somewhere in the world. Why aren't we saying in the United States, we're gonna dominate and make 50% of those and then drive those investments through opportunity zones, through in tax incentives, through grant money, however it can be, drive those investments, drive that growth into the old manufacturing communities, the old textile communities, the old auto coal communities, communities of color that have been left behind for the last 30 or 40 years. What I'm trying to do is say, look, this is not about left or right. This is about new versus old. And if we don't adapt to the new economy, if we don't understand there's an industrial revolution happening in the world today and we want America to lead it, we're going to continue to lose. And there's a way to do this where you actually cut the middle class in on the deal, cut the workers in on the deal. So I would say, let's go hard at electric vehicles. Within the first week I'm in office, there will be a meeting in the White House about how we dominate 50% of the electric vehicle market and the battery market and get those jobs back in the United States. All
4: right, let's talk about another issue that came up during the midterms. It's an issue that a lot of voters, both Republicans and Democrats, have focused on, and that's health care. You've got a major case down in New Orleans that could potentially uh, be one of the death knells for the Affordable Care Act. You have proposals out there from the far left for Medicare for all, how do you address the health care issue in this country?
2: Well, I don't believe we should be the party going in taking people's private insurance away from them. I think that is a very, very big mistake. I think we do need a public option and, and, and so that people can buy into and get some kind of basic care. And if they can't afford it, we should help them pay for it. That should be a right in the United States. We all should be in agreement. But we spend two and a half times as much as any other industrialized country today and we get the worst results. Uh, so we need to actually fix the system. And I think it starts with moving from just talking about health insurance, which of course needs reformed. But moving away from a disease care system, a sick care system, into a system that focuses on prevention, where the incentives for the doctor and the patient are to get and stay healthy, and refunds and rebates for those patients who get and stay healthy, money for doctors who help patients get and stay healthy, 75% of our healthcare costs today are from chronic diseases that are largely preventable. That's two to three trillion dollars a year. So if you're a CEO sitting here listening to this uh, conversation we're having, you're gonna say, man, if I'm looking at my spreadsheet and two to three trillion dollars is something that we can prevent in expenditures, How do we do it? And there are innovative ways out there around food as medicine where we're literally reversing type two diabetes by making a few thousand dollar investment into diet, nutrition, and some support, getting good food to people basically. It's reversing type two diabetes which costs us $14,000 a year. So what I'm saying is it's not left, it's not right, it's new versus old, and there's new ideas about using food as medicine and helping people prevent diseases. That's the
8: way forward, and that's the kind of healthcare plan I'm going to implement. Uh, Congressman, your uh, House colleague, uh, Eric Swalwell, dropping out of the race. You're polling very low, and there's probably, I think there's 23 or 24 other candidates in there. So what is the message that's going to break out? Because at a time when people are talking about impeachment and they're talking about Medicare for all and so on, is it going to be electric cars? Like, what's going to be the thing that uh, stands out? It's going to be the candidate that is
2: focusing on the economic anxiety that the American people are feeling right now. I don't think there's been any candidate who's as clearly addressed it. Uh, In the last debate, I was very clear about it. In this debate, I'll be very clear about it. Uh, this has got to be the issue. How do we address the economic anxiety that the American people are feeling? How do we address the, the anxiety, the mental health crisis in the United States? Look, I come from a forgotten community, and it turns out that most of the country feels forgotten, and they're going to want to vote for somebody who knows what it's like to come from one of these communities. I'm at the at ground zero of the opiate epidemic. I'm at ground zero of globalization and automation. I know the path forward. We talked about it in this interview, and they want someone who who they know is gonna walk into the Oval Office and be thinking about them. And the more people hear about me, the more they like me. If they want someone to really have a robust economic message, that's what's happening here. I had my highest fundraising days after the debate, and so we're just gonna continue to move forward. I'm, I'm meeting with the people. I'm not from a big state. I'm not from a big city. I didn't go to the Ivy League, so I don't have a big Ivy League network, but I'm moving. I mean, if you look at the polling, people have raised $15, $20, 25000000 15, 20, 25 million dollars, and they're three percent ahead of me. So uh, I'm competing in this race and I think I got a really good shot at winning.
1: That does it for this episode of What'd You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our market close show every weekday from 3:30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and have a great
0: weekend. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis,